Thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Once Upon a Crime. Today's episode and the next two for December are going to be a little different from the usual true crime stories I tell you. Don't worry, there'll still be plenty of true crime content, almost all the way up until Christmas before I take my annual holiday break. The next two episodes, I'll be covering two cases that I've been interested in for a long time, and I'll have two very special guests who will come along to discuss them with me. I think you're going to love it, and I'm really excited about these episodes. But first, while you're all still knee-deep in turkey and stuffing leftovers in the United States, and maybe digging out of the snow in many other places, I'm going to do something I haven't done before for this episode, and that is to answer some of the questions I've received from listeners this past year. I get a lot of questions emailed to me. Also, I get some on Facebook and other places, and people want to know some things about me, some things about the podcast, and some things about the cases that I've covered. So I'm going to answer a few of those questions and also talk a little bit about my thoughts on the whole true crime craze. I'll also update you on a few cases that I've covered in the past that have recently returned in the news. This is the Once Upon a Crime first ever AMA and updates episode for 2019. So I'm going to start out with some questions first. I get some really great questions, and sometimes they're repeated. While I've answered them maybe in something like a Facebook post or maybe like when I've done a presentation or something, I've never answered it completely on the podcast. So one of the questions that I get, and this one came from Roscoe. Thanks, Roscoe, for your question. And he asked this, and I get this question a lot. Being a true crime podcaster full-time, does the endless research of crime topics, victim stories, and gruesome details take a toll on you? And I know that a lot of people um, like Roscoe say that sometimes listening to true crime maybe too much starts to weigh on their minds and they have to take a little break or maybe listen to something completely different um, that doesn't have to do with these darker subjects. And um, I'll be honest with you guys, it doesn't bother me. (laughs) And I don't know if that makes me weird or strange. I'm sure it does. But it really doesn't. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Now, while I'm researching them and while I'm writing them, I'm really involved in the story. I, I feel like I live with these people for a week, if not longer, Um, just really immersed in their stories. So at that point, yeah, I almost feel like these are people I know. These are people that, you know, are on my mind all day long for a certain amount of time. And I think that's why I can get into the story and really get into the details and really try to tell the story the best way that I can that really gives you a flavor of, for hopefully not just the facts and the details, but also the feelings associated with it, the way people think, um, the way it comes across just being, you know, a true story about real people. But once I'm done with it, there's something about the way that I, just the way I'm wired, I think, that I'm able to kind of shut that off. And I'll tell you what happens sometimes. It's like, I'll finish doing the story, recording it, editing it, and all of that, and then move on to the next topic that I'm working on. And Somebody will maybe send me a question or ask me or, you know, see me and ask a question about that last case that I did. And I have to really rack my brain to remember uh, most of the time what exactly I said and what exactly was in there because I'm already immersed in the next story. And I also think that one of the reasons why I'm able to do that to kind of compartmentalize 
what I'm thinking about so that it's not weighing on me all the time and it's not, I'm not stuck in that mode of sadness or um, horror of what I've just researched is because I do have a background um, that I was a, a counselor. And so I sat across with people with real life stories and real life pain and problems. While I was with my client at the time, I was very immersed in their story and I was very immersed in trying to help them in whatever way I could, but I could not take that, absorb it and take it home with me because that would just really affect my own life and my own family and my own day to day, just, you know, going about your business. So somehow I was able, maybe through my training or maybe through just experience, able to kind of put those things aside when, because here's the thing. And I think that this is really important to remember as a person who follows true crime and maybe listens to podcasts or watches television shows or whatever it is, however you, you know, absorb that information is that we do not have control over a lot of things that go on in the world. And this is something I learned while I was working as a counselor is that I am there to help my client, but I am not in control of their lives. So I do the best I can. I try to understand and be empathetic, give them some tools, hopefully to help them, but know that ultimately I am not responsible for the outcome. If you are that person and believe me, just like anybody else, I'd like to have control of things as well. But you have to be realistic and know that you don't, even if it's a loved one or, you know, somebody making choices that you don't agree with or you think are harmful or whatever, you can do your best you can to love that person and to help them, um, give them advice if they ask for it. But ultimately, they make their own decisions. So knowing that you're not in charge and you're not in control and doing the best you can with that to let things go, I think really helps to keep me from you know, staying in a dark place and getting depressed and upset about these stories. So that is just the way I deal with it. But no, I actually don't. Um, I don't have, I've, I mean, knock on wood, I have never even had a nightmare about any of the cases that I've um, covered. And this is what's really funny. When I do have a dream about podcasting, it's about hanging out with other podcasters. <laughs> and so, and it's funny because I'll have those kind of dreams, but I never have dreams about the people, um, you know, the victims that I, I talk about or I research. Um, I just, I don't, it's never happened. And, and I'm kind of, I'm very, you know, glad for it. So let's move on to the next question. So Angela is also, I live in the San Francisco Bay area and she says she's also a Bay area, Bay area native and would like to know which Bay area cases would I say are the most shocking or notorious in our area? in the last decade. As far as the last decade, it might be a little past the last decade, but the ones that I think are the biggest stories and the ones that I've covered, let's put it that way, because there's there's others, I'm sure, but the ones that I've covered um, that are some of the biggest in this area, um, number one is the Lacey Peterson case, the Lacey Peterson murder. Of course, you know, her husband, Scott Peterson, was suspected of her murder and tried and found guilty and is sitting on death row in San Quentin now for uh, Lacey's uh, murder and the murder of their unborn child who was about to be born. I think when we talk about big cases, you definitely have to look at the media reporting on those cases because 
or good or bad, that makes it a big case in our area, right? It's what we hear the most about, what the most reporting is on, all of that. So that would be huge. And as you guys know, I did that one, gosh, no, almost going on two years ago, um, that I did the discussion on that with my sister because my sister was also a Bay Area native. Um, and now she's not, she lives in another state, but she was living here at the time when this happened and actually living closer to the area where Lacey and Scott Peterson lived. And she also followed that very closely. So we had a, a, a pretty detailed discussion about our thoughts on that case and going through the timeline very meticulously to kind of suss out what Scott Peterson said happened that morning and from what the investigation um, showed and what came up at trial. So you guys might want to take a look, listen to that one. People really like that one. Um, my sister and I getting to talk about a case together, which is really fun. The other one that was really, really big here, another one that I report, that I uh, covered was the Yosemite murder. So the three women um, that went missing from the motel up in Yosemite, Carol and her daughter, Julie Sund, and their friend, Sylvina Peloso, who were visiting the uh, Yosemite National Park at the time and went missing. Um, and then there was a second woman not long after, uh, Joey Armstrong, who went missing as well, actually went missing and was found pretty quickly murdered. The other three, it took a while for them to find the bodies of uh, those three women, unfortunately. But what we found out is that Carrie Stainer was responsible for all four murders. And so that was our, you know, serial killer here up in Yosemite National Park. It was big at first because it was a missing persons case for a while. Um, and then when um, the bodies were found, then, of course, it became um, a murder, a murder case. Which other one, a little bit more recently, was the Pacific Heights dog mauling case. That was huge here because it's such an odd and brutal case where um, Diane Whipple was living in a beautiful apartment building in San Francisco. Um, and the neighbors down the hall had two large, very large, out-of-control dogs that uh, they believed they had trained to be aggressive. And um, they attacked her just right outside of her apartment door and, um, and killed her. So I reported on that one. And that one really stuck with me. I mean, for obvious reasons, it's super brutal and just so bizarre um, that that could happen in a place like that um, in such a way. And um, there's a lot more to that story. So I urge you to check that one out. And that was in the Wild Things series. And it was the Pacific Heights dog mauling case. Okay, next question. Matt asks if there's an unsolved case I'd like to see solved. Yeah, there's a few. Um, I think the one that, that has to come to mind right away is Black Dahlia case. Because there's so many, there's so many theories of it, and there's so many people that have been that have been suspected of of murdering um, Elizabeth Short. And of course, this is a historical case back in the 1940s in Los Angeles, where the woman was found. Again, a very bizarre, bizarre case where she was found basically dissected in half. And it's just, I mean, especially in those days, it's like you didn't expect something like that. I mean, that that's like a throwback to to like Jack the Ripper or something, just crazy. So, um, and the fact that it was not solved and to this day has not been solved, I think 
wouldn't that be something if somebody could actually solve that? It is like Jack the Ripper, like it probably will never be solved. They're so old that it's probably not going to happen, but that's why I think they live on. And, and there's all these theories that come up of who could have done it. And if you guys um, listen to the podcast, The Root of Evil, that came out this year, it goes it goes to the Black Dahlia case. And it's very interesting. So uh, it's a really well done podcast, the series um, about this family who believe that their family member was the killer of the Black Dahlia and just kind of going into those details. So check that one out. It's pretty amazing. Um, the other one it is mine personally, I think, that I would really, really like to see a solution to, but I don't think it's going to happen, is the John Bonet Ramsey case. Um, again, for obvious reasons, you know, a little girl is um, supposedly kidnapped from her bed um, the day after Christmas, you know, as the parents are waiting for the kidnappers to call, they find her murdered in her own home, in the basement of her own home. Um, again, a, a huge case, lots of theories, lots of specials and documentaries and podcasts about it that go into several different theories of who's responsible. And it's still debated to this day, but it would be great to know for sure, because that was just such a, a horrible um, case of a child murder. And I'll give you a little um, teaser. It may be one that we're diving into a little bit this month on the podcast, but talking about it in a little bit of a different way with a special guest. I'll just leave it at that because that'll be coming up real soon. And I think you guys, if you're interested in that case, I think you'll be interested in what my guest has to say and how we go about uh, covering it. Okay. Beatrice asks, which case has hit closest to home for me? Yeah, I don't know that I could say as far as personally hit closest to home to me. Like, I I don't know that there's anybody that I can say that I've covered anyway, that I've, that I've had a personal connection to me at all, anything like that. But I think there's some that resonate longer with me, maybe because they are local, um, like the Lacey Peterson case, again, because that was such a big thing in the news. And so that stayed with me. And the Pacific Heights one as well, same reason. And there's another one that I covered was the San Francisco Zoo tiger attack. Um, that was also a wild in the Wild Things series. And that's because it happened here again in the Bay Area but also because the family of the of the boy that was killed by the tiger, which is bizarre, lived here in San Jose. So there was quite a bit about his family. And I mean, just imagine dealing with something like that. Like, it's just so strange and so tragic. And he was just a teenager. And then also following the case to see exactly what happened. And is was somebody going to be held responsible for that? Um, who maybe caused that to happen. And then there's one other one. Um, well, there's two other ones. One is is a more serious and one is kind of silly, but <laughs> one was the, the, the more serious one was the Eileen Franklin case of the recovered memory um, where she said as a child, like an eight-year-old child, that she witnessed her father 
uh, murder her friend, Susan Nason. She was from Foster City. She was found on a road towards going towards Half Moon Bay, which is um, going towards the coast up here. Not Again, not too far from where I live. The case was not solved. And then many years later, 20, 20 years later, um, a young woman comes forward and says, in therapy, I recovered this memory that my father actually killed this girl and I was there. Um, and so that was a very bizarre case. And again, that was one that stayed with me. Um, I had read about it when she accused her father of the murder and it became a big thing in the news again here. And I followed that one, but it was just such a strange, strange case and wanted to see, was that true or not? Because there was a lot of questions about whether or not she actually did witness anything. And you'll, you can get all the details in that. Um, and that was the murder memories series the Eileen Franklin case. And the other one that's pretty silly, but it was super right here in my backyard, was the Wendy's Chili Finger <laughs> case about the woman who said that she found a severed finger in her uh, cup of Wendy's chili at the fast food restaurant and was suing uh, for a lot of money or was attempting to sue for a lot of money because it happened right here, like in my backyard. I mean, and it was just so crazy. It was in a San Jose fast food restaurant. It's such a silly case, but, you know, you want to listen to that one. That's in the um, Fast Food Felonies, I believe, um, was the name of that series. So check that one out. It's pretty crazy and just more a little bit more lighthearted. Um, okay, here's a really interesting question. This was from Janelle, and I hope I'm saying that right. I'm curious about recidivism rates. How many murderers actually serve their full sentences? And if not, do they go on to be productive members of society or do they end up in the system again? So she said she was recalling the Mary Vincent case. Lawrence Singleton, her attacker, served part of his sentence, was paroled, and then he killed again. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. It depends on what time period you're talking about because I know that in the past, and I just covered one like this, where I talked about um, murder, you know, even first-degree murderer, Back in the day, like in the 60s and the 50s, they had, you know, the maximum sentence. It could say say life, but it might be like seven years to life, which, you know, is pretty short. Some people got out much earlier than you would have suspected. But now, at least in the United States, the justice system has swung the other way, where it's much more punitive. Sentences are much longer. There's mandatory minimums in a lot of cases. So a lot of people don't get out. Um, if they do something like murder. But as far as recidivism rates, um, this was interesting because what I've found is it's also dependent on when a person commits a crime. And I'm talking about what age they're at um, when they commit this crime. A lot of, I mean, this is one of the things that I learned. I don't know if I've probably talked about this before, but I have a degree in correctional psychology. And one of the things we did study was recidivism rates for juveniles as well as for adults that are incarcerated. Um, and what we know is that when a person is incarcerated at a young age, let's say between teens and early 20s, that they sometimes can do their sentence. And then if they get out, let's say that they're especially, I'm talking mostly males because most of the research I did and most of the research that's done on uh, correctional psychology is done on incarcerated males because it's, there's a higher number of them. But when these men get out, if they're over 30-ish, early to mid-30s, um, at a higher rate, they do not reoffend, And what they call that is aging out. 
aging out of criminal activity. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it because, you know, when you're young and you are impulsive and maybe you don't make the best choices and you may do some of these types of crimes, the recidivism rates aren't as high for that population. But it also depends on the type of crime. So if we're talking about men who did maybe a robbery or a car theft or something like that, then that's that kind of falls into that category. But if it's like um, a sexual assault, rape, that has a very high recidivism rate. Um, it's one of those things that they even do studies and say, is it possible for somebody who's a sexual predator to be rehabilitated? And that's, of course, an ongoing debate. But knowing that the recidivism rate for those types of crimes is very high if they are paroled. So that's kind of two different scenarios about that. And from my observation, it also depends on the environment the person goes back to. One of the populations I worked a lot with when I was you know, working in the, in the field was with uh, gang-involved youth. So what we know is they get involved in gangs usually because that's something that's prevalent in their communities and their neighborhoods, in the history maybe of, even of their own families. And then they get involved in that. They get you know, caught up in either drugs or violent crime or both. And then they end up in jail or prison. And if they come back out and they go right back into that lifestyle, into that neighborhood, um, and don't do something different, then that recidivism rate is going to be very high as well. That was one of the things that I was really interested in studying when I was um, doing, you know, going for my degree was how do we change that? How do we change criminal behavior how do we get people that are involved in, in crime to do something different? What are the best motivators for that? What are the things that work the best? Um, so this is why I really like to dive into these cases and look at even the perpetrator and where they came from, looking at some other cases and saying, wow, you know, what, where did they make that decision? Where did they turn a corner and decide, I'm going to go this way? You know, and I think the reason why so many of us are so fascinated with true crime is not, I mean, yeah, I guess there's some level of, you know, I guess people say, well, you know, you're just focused on the dark stuff and the gruesome and whatever. And I don't know that that's it as much as what I gather from most people is really because that is such an anomaly to us that somebody could decide that they're going to kill their entire family or kidnap somebody and keep them for a dozen years or, um, you know, become a serial killer, you know, and, and we want to understand it because it's something that we can't really fathom in our just normal day to day. This is the way, you know, human kind of condition, like we can't fathom how that happens. So we really want to, you know, turn over those rocks and see what is it we need to know about this? And I guess that's why I get into the details and I really enjoy bringing these stories and getting other information that maybe can help us understand that a little bit. It's not always successful. Sometimes we're still scratching our heads at the end of the episode, I know. But it is, it is something I think that's interesting to look at. Great questions, you guys. I really appreciate you sending those in. Um, like I said, they're ones that I get often, so I really wanted to you know, give give some answers, finally, <laughs> on the podcast. 
We're going to move along to some updates. So I wanted to share with you guys some updates and some things that have come out this year about the cases that I've covered. If you guys remember way back, way, way back, (laughs) in episode 30 in the series Sweetheart Killers, I talked about the Long Island Lolita case or the Amy Fisher case. So if you'll recall, the Amy Fisher case was the story of a 17-year-old girl, Amy Fisher, who was having an affair with a 34-year-old man and decided to eliminate his wife as her rival and went up to her front door in Long Island and shot her in the face. She fortunately survived, but this became a huge scandal in New York and then around the country. And um, now ABC News in 2020 aired a Growing Up Buttafuoco, a two-hour special, which came out in November. And this special focused on Joey Buttafuoco, who was the name of the, the husband who was having a, the affair with a teenager. And the former Mary Jo Buttafuoco, his wife, who they are now divorced, and also their 36-year-old daughter named Jessica. So the special was supposed to be an update of the case, what's happening now, and promised never-before-seen Buttafuoco family home videos and what it claimed would be TV's first interview of Amy Fisher's reputed accomplice, Stephen Sleeman. He was the, uh, the teenage boy that drove Amy to the house where she shot Mary Jo. They also had, uh, the Buttafuoco's also had a son who was 12 years old at the time of the shooting, but he has not gone on programs. He's pretty much maintained a low profile. But Jessica, his sister, who was nine at the time that, of the shooting, she has appeared on uh, documentaries. Um, she was on uh, Where Are They Now on OWN television. She has been on Dr. Oz and even had a YouTube series. I did not watch this yet, so but I probably will. And <laughs> one of the things I'll say is that I'm looking forward to my break, not because I'm not going to be working on the podcast. I will be. Um, I'll be writing episodes for January and February, but I won't be having a, you know, a recording and release schedule until I come back on January 20th. So what that's going to do is give me time to do additional research to get into, get a little bit deeper in some of the, the, the stories that I want to tell you guys. And also to partake of some of this true crime content that I never get a chance to watch or listen to. Um, and I think I'll put that one on my list because there, if you don't know about the Buttafuoco story, it's, it's pretty crazy. And there's been stuff over the years. Um, Amy Fisher tried to have like a, a porn career for a while, and but she got married and then had kids and was living as a normal housewife. And Joey's kind of tried to become a reality series star and that didn't go too far. I mean, there's just all kinds of things. So it'd be interesting to see um, kind of the updates on that. Mary Jo actually remarried and is living a normal life in California. Okay, this one I'm really looking forward to. So as you guys know, the Dirty John podcast um, that came out, gosh, what, a couple years ago now, um, that became a huge thing. And then it became a television series. Now there's going to be Dirty John season two. And I don't know if they're going to call it Dirty John season two, but it sounds like they will, which is odd. But Dirty John season two will focus on this true story of Betty Broderick. And you guys know that 
I covered this way back in episode 42 in the Woman Scorned series. And Betty is just one of the most fascinating subjects I have covered. And so they're going to do a series on the Betty Broderick story. Now, if you remember this, it was uh, Betty Broderick, who was a housewife married to a attorney, a very successful attorney. They were wealthy. Um, she suspected he was having an affair. He denied it for the longest time, but then they finally broke up and he ended up moving in or moving the woman in. Um, the woman that she thought or knew or pretty much suspected was his mistress. And so the divorce from there got very, very ugly to the point of um, where she was vandalizing his house. He was withholding her alimony payments. I mean, just on and on and on. He got remarried to the girlfriend um, whose name was Linda Colkenna. His name was Dan Broderick. She just decided she couldn't take it. Um, I'm talking about Betty and broke into their house one evening and killed both of them as they lay in their beds by shooting them. So this became a big, a big story. And there was even a movie of the week made of it starring um, Meredith Baxter Burney, all of this, right? So this Dirty John series, of course, is a dramatized version of the Betty Broderick story. Um, and here's who's going to play the characters. Amanda Peet will play Betty. You guys know Amanda Peet. Um, I don't, I'm trying to picture her as Betty. Because um, Amanda Peet is a very pretty woman, but she's got like dark hair and Betty was always the bottle blonde. Um, so I'm sure she'll dye her hair blonde. But check this out. Christian Slater is going to play Dan Broderick. So that should be interesting. I don't have a date of when this is going to come out, but I'll be keeping an eye on it and um, let you guys know. It does come out. Check the Facebook page because I usually post things there. Okay, a couple of cases that I covered that had updates that I wanted to talk to you guys about. Gosh, some of these are just amazing. Um, <laughs> there's two. So this is back in episode 45. And this is also a, the woman's, a woman scorned series, but this was the episode about Clara Harris. And you may remember it. It was also called Murder by Mercedes. So Clara Harris was the woman. She was a, a her and her husband were very successful dentists that lived in Texas. And she discovered that he was having an affair. He basically admitted to it finally and then told her he ended it. But one day, she actually got um, private detectives and one day, you know, found out that that wasn't true, that he was still seeing this woman. So she traveled to where he was with this woman. He was w walking out of a hotel. You really stepped your foot in it if you're in a hotel with your mistress and your wife catches you. So he's leaving the hotel, walking to his car. She gets into her Mercedes and happens to have his daughter, her stepdaughter in the car along with her and plows into her husband. and. Um, not once, but three or four times runs over him. And uh, he dies. And now she is charged with murder. So this happened in 2002. Clara Harris killed her husband, David Harris, as and witnessed by her stepdaughter, Lindsay. Um, and she's been in the news um, since then. There was actually, there's a, a journalist, and I'm going to talk a little bit about his updated story 
named uh, Skip Hollinsworth. He writes for the Texas Monthly. He's an amazing journalist. He covers some true crime stories for Texas Monthly, and they're always just really detailed. And so he wrote an article about the original case in called Suburban Madness, and, and for the Texas Monthly, it's just an amazing uh, piece of journalism that he did. I love his writing. In 2005, she was actually interviewed from her from prison by Oprah. So she was on the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, in 2007, she was back in the news when David Harris's parents brought a wrongful death lawsuit against her. They were awarded $3.75 million for the murder of their son, for the loss of their son. She went up for parole for the first time in 2012 and was turned down. So she was also turned down three times more by the parole board over the next five years. And then in October 2017, oh, one thing I didn't remind you guys is that she, they had, her and David had twin sons who I believe were only three years old at the time when um, their father was killed. In October of 2017, her twin sons, who are now 19 years old, uh, spoke at her parole hearing. And as far as I know, I, I guess, I'm not sure if it's the same in every state, but usually the victims can make a statement at the parole hearings, but not supporters. But this was their father that was killed. So they are the victims. And I believe that might be why they were able to make this statement and basically said that they loved their mother that, um, you know, they lost their father, but they also lost their mother at the same time. The boys went to go live with family friends after she went to prison and were being raised by this other couple. So they basically talked to the parole board about the loss of not just their father, but their mother and um, asked for leniency and to allow her to come home. Well, that request was granted because the parole board decided to um, grant her parole. And that was, like I said, they spoke at the hearing in October 2017. She had a May 11, 2018 release date, which is when she was released. And at this, at this time, she is now 60 years old. And that information came from the Skip Hollinsworth article for the Texas Monthly that was dated May 11, 2018, the day that she was released. He also reports that she is penniless. Um, and legally still owes her in-laws $3.75 million. Um, and she will initially initially live with a friend and look for a job. She is not able to practice dentistry anymore because of her criminal record. So that's not an option that's open to her as far as employment. She has her supporters, including her sons, but she is now free. That was episode number 45, if you guys want to review that one, if, or if you haven't heard it yet. Okay, the last one I'm going to talk about an update, and this one, oh my gosh, this is just a story that just never ends, is uh, episode 83, which was the Unusual Criminal Defenses series, and this was the Affluenza Defense. So this was a story about Ethan Couch, who was a 16-year-old boy who reportedly was coddled very much by his parents. He was driving like a $50,000 truck one day while he was drunk and high. He had uh, friends in the truck with him. The truck went out of control. He ended up killing four teenagers um, while under the influence. This was in June of 2013 in Texas. And his privilege continued when, even though responsible for the deaths of four kids, he was given 10 years probation by the judge. 
um, the attorney said, basically, he really didn't know right from wrong because he didn't have any boundaries. Um, his parents were, you know, spoiled him. And so he shouldn't be held responsible because he didn't know any better, right? Because he was raised terribly, apparently. Um, so he was given just 10 years probation, which, of course, you can imagine was there was an uproar about that. And then somebody posted a picture of him drinking. Again, he was still underage, drinking at a party, which was something that was prohibited by his, uh, you know, his probationary status. So he was looking at getting jailed because of that. So his mother took $30,000 out of the bank, grabbed up her son, and hid him away in Mexico. Um, He took off. This was in December of 2015. He was basically a fugitive for a couple of weeks before he was found um, with his mother in a uh, beach resort town in Mexico and brought back. Now, he was given two years in jail and released in April of 2018. And again, on 10 years probation, which he could not drink or do any drugs. He was, um, he had to get, you know, drug testing periodically. He had a curfew of 9 p.m. He had to wear an ankle bracelet all the time. But in March of 2019, which was only a year after his probation started, he was able to get the ankle monitor removed, although he was still on uh, the rest of the restrictions. Now, his mother had also been charged because she helped to aid the fugitive, and uh, she was put on probation as well. But apparently she had a drug problem, and she kept getting caught for, you know, testing positive for methamphetamines, and went to jail in April 2019. So at that time, she posted a $75,000 bond to get out of jail. And this is really odd. Okay, so April 2019, she posted a $75,000 bond. But then the following month, or two months later, she asked the court for financial assistance, saying that she cannot get a job because of all of the, the notoriety of this case. But... Um, and she has no money. Didn't she just post $75,000 bond? Where did she get that? Okay. <laughs> so that was the last as, as far as Tanya Couch, his, his mother. Okay. Now here's another one I just found. Um, his father, Fred Couch, and I saw this headline. It's in September of 2019, so just recently. He was arrested on an assault charge where it says he choked his girlfriend. Okay. I mean, obviously this is a family, a whole family of people with Without any self-control, apparently, right? Okay, but then I read this, and this came from uh, a journalist named Tim Rogers, and it was published in Front Burner on August 30th, 2019. And this is about Fred Couch. It says, uh, you may remember the Couches. In May 2015, Tanya and Fred Couch appeared on the cover of D Magazine for a story titled The Worst Parents Ever. (laughs) Which I think, oh my gosh. Um, Their son, Ethan, famously used the affluenza defense. It was given only probation for killing four people and maiming two others in a drunken driving crash in 2013. Tanya and Fred are now divorced for the second time. Um, Tanya has been in and out of jail too many times to keep track of. That's what I was just telling you guys about. The last time we heard from Fred, he was getting sentenced in 2016 after being found guilty of impersonating a peace officer. I didn't know about that one. Well, he's been arrested again, it says. He was booked into the Tarrant County Jail Tuesday on a felony family violence charge for choking his girlfriend. 
he bonded out of jail early Wednesday morning. This is from the detective who was assigned to the case. He said that he spoke with the victim during a recorded conversation. She told me that she and her boyfriend, Fred Couch, were hanging out with a friend on a pirate ship that drives around downtown Fort Worth. A pirate ship? Now I'd like to see that. Do you guys know about this? (laughs) Because that sounds amazing. Um, They were hanging out with a friend on a pirate ship that drives around downtown Fort Worth. And she confront. Okay, now this is the part that gets really interesting to me because remember, all of this whole thing was them constantly coddling their son, defending their son, saving their son from himself, and not not providing any consequences in his life. And you can hear that in the episode um, that I did on this case because there's a lot of that before the the uh, the tragic car crash happens. This is why the fight happened, according to the police report. The victim confronted Fred about his son Ethan's curfew. Now, remember, I just told you that Ethan has a 9 p.m. curfew. So what was going on there? Maybe Ethan was out and it was late and they saw him or maybe who knows. But somehow she was talking about Ethan's curfew, maybe saying, hey, isn't he supposed to be home? It's nine o'clock, whatever. Um, Fred then became upset with the victim and began talking bad about her. Okay, (laughs) well, here we go. Fred continued talking bad about her to the point when they got home, she started screaming at him. Okay, so now now we're having a fight about the snot-nosed brat son. Okay, (laughs) God. Fred started recording her with his cell phone. She grabbed the phone out of his hands and told him to stop recording her. He then grabbed her by the throat, causing her to gasp for air. She quickly pushed Fred away from her. Fred told her to pack her things and get out. And she reported that she had difficulty swallowing for two days after the incident, but did not have any marks on the outer area of her neck. She said she was too scared to say anything, so she waited a few days to report the incident. She requested an emergency protective order and a family violence packet was completed. So then the detective called to speak with Fred. Fred told me, the the officer reports, He was not refusing to speak with me, but wanted his lawyer uh, made aware. He said he had audio recordings of the incident and will give them to his attorney. So looks like he got arrested for that. I don't know. There's no update yet on that. Like I said, that was in August. Have not seen anything. But, you know, most likely it's he's going to get a fine or whatever. It seems like that was happens to this family most of the time. But again, this is one of those things that I think is so interesting because when we get into the details of this family, these family dynamics and the personalities, it kind of gives us more of an idea of how these things come about, how they happen, um, you know, how their son could go to this extreme of irresponsibility and to the point where he ends up being responsible for four deaths and two, you know, catastrophic injuries of, of these friends of his. And the other thing, and you'll, again, you'll hear that in the episode, is that one of the biggest problems that the families had, they said, you know, if it's an accident, it's an accident. Of course, he was drinking and that was wrong, but he shows no remorse, none. You know, he just, he doesn't understand. He didn't even understand why they wanted to take his driver's license away. Like, dude. (laughs) So, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, Okay, so that, I believe... Is that so? I am just the last thing I wanted to say. Like I said, we have two more episodes coming up in December. 
for the next two Mondays um, and with special guests and detailing a, a one crime case each as normal, but with some discussion with my guests because this is there's a lot of parts and pieces to these cases and I really wanted somebody to discuss it with. And I thought it would be a fun treat for the holiday season to have something a little bit different. So the last episode will come out on December 16th and then I will be off. I will be off for the week of Christmas and the week of New Year's. And I'm actually for the first time ever taking a little bit more of an extended break. And don't worry, it's not that long. I'll be back with a new episode with a new series in the new year on January 20th. So there'll be a little bit of time in between. But I have a, over 150 episodes in the back catalog. So if you guys haven't listened to all those, there's plenty to listen to. If you have listened to all of those, I'm going to be giving you guys some more uh, recommendations of other podcasts over the next couple of episodes um, until I wrap up for the year. So once again, I just want to thank you all for coming back, for listening, for telling friends about the podcast. You guys have been amazing. Keep the questions coming. I will answer those on the Facebook page. I answer them on Twitter. Feel free to send an email. I love hearing from you guys. I hope you all um, are getting ready to have a wonderful holiday season. And I will be talking to you again next week. And until next time, you know what to do. Be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.